Well, good morning. Uh, Happy New Year. Uh, You won't be uh, surprised, hopefully, to hear that this morning uh, our main focus is going to be on Jesus. Uh, However, I want to start off in a slightly unconventional way. I want to start off by talking about Bill Gates. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, $72.7 billion, Bill Gates, as an individual, is the 37th wealthiest country on earth. Just him by himself. That means there are hundreds and hundreds of countries which have fewer resources than Bill does. How about this for a stat? If Bill Gates woke up tomorrow morning and he decided to be incredibly generous, in fact, he decided to give everyone on planet Earth $10, he would still be worth $2.26 billion having given all that money away. Now, a few weeks back, Bill Gates celebrated his 59th birthday. So if we were to uh, assume that he lives until he's 90, which is a yeah, re- reasonable guess, if we assume he lives to be 90, he would have to spend a bit over $6 million each day for the next 31 years to exhaust his wealth. And that's without him making any more money in the meantime. That is with absolutely no rate of return on the billions he already has. Even if he's not making any more money, he still needs to spend $6 million a day. It's quite a challenge. Challenge I wouldn't mind rising to myself. But I mean, where do you start? In fact, let's get a bit of audience participation. Why don't you just shout out what you would do if you had $72.7 billion at your disposal, what would you do with it? Go on holiday. Yeah? Buy Birmingham City. (laughs) (laughs) And buy a new striker as well, perhaps. Yeah. Any other suggestions? Buy an island. Buy an island. Is the one that you have in in mind? England. England? Yeah. (laughs) Reasonable-sized island, okay. I'm liking this. Any other adventurous things you do with your money? Anyone go shopping? No, no. Uh, anyone buy a new house? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyone give some of it away? Oh no, 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 no! <laughs> Don't do that. Now, I think it's only fair to say, uh, not only is Bill Gates the wealthiest man on earth. He's actually, unlike you lot, uh, one of the most generous men on earth. Over the years, Bill Gates has given away around $28 billion to various charities. Now, use your imaginations here. If we were to clear all the chairs out of the way and pile up in the middle of the room all of the money that all of us in the room right now would make in an entire lifetime, the amount that Bill Gates has given away would completely dwarf that pile of money. Now, in a worldly sense, to look at this kind of wealth is a mind-boggling, what do you even do with that kind of thing? But here's where I'm going with this, because some of you are wondering where I'm going with this. Compared with the wealth of God, Bill Gates is a pauper, because everything he has and all he is was created by God. And in regards to his generosity, which is stunning, I mean, $28 billion 
dollars. You're giving away more wealth than some countries own. I mean, no one could argue that he's not unbelievably generous until you compare him with the generosity of God. Then all of a sudden, he looks like a complete and utter hoarder. What I want to do this morning, very simply, is take a step back and marvel at God's incredible, lavish, infinite generosity towards us. If you've been around the last four months, you'll know that we are slap bang in the middle of a series trying to get the big picture of the world's greatest story. We're we're trying to cover the big story of the Bible in a mere 20 weeks. If truth be told, it's been a bit of a challenge going through the whole Bible so quickly. It's like some weeks we've covered four or five centuries in one talk. One week we covered 15 or 16 books of the Bible in 40 minutes. But this morning... We're going to be dealing with such a turning point in history, we're just going to be focusing on what happened on one single day, as described by one single verse. Really, all we've seen over the last 13 weeks has been heading towards this one moment. And all we're going to be seeing over the next six weeks as we work through the rest of the New Testament is merely going to be working out the implications of this single moment. Talking, of course, about the death of Jesus. Jesus dying on the cross for us. Jesus literally giving up his life for us. This moment very much stands at the crossroads of the Bible. In fact, the crossroads of all human history. Also, the crossroads of your life. And how you respond to what happened on that day is the single most defining point in your whole existence. And so all I want to do today is lay out for you why this is such a crucial turning point, not only in world history, but also in your own life. And through it all, I want to try and help you grasp, maybe for the the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, the incredible generosity of God towards you. More than anything else, my hope, my prayer, is that God would open our eyes to the fact He's already given us significantly more than the entirety of all Bill Gates' wealth. And if we grasp His profound generosity to us, that we'd leave here today in an hour, hour and a half's time, with a fresh motivation to live in the good of it and also to share some of it with others. The end of the day, that's my hope. And to get there, I just want us to very slowly work our way through this one very famous verse, John 3, verse 16. Here's how it starts. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. Now, if you write in your Bible, if you circle things in your Bible, if you highlight things in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline, to circle, to highlight the word so. 
it is a great word. For God so loved the world. As in, there is a volume of love that God had for the world that he's expressing here in this text. It wasn't a little bit of love. It wasn't a small amount of love. It is huge. It is extravagant. It is staggering. It's overwhelming. It's infinite. He so loved the world. Just to say, What's meant by world here isn't that God so loved the planet Earth in general. No, he so loved the inhabitants of planet Earth. I want to just stop and reflect on this for a moment. Because here's what makes the generosity of God stunning and so incredibly different than, say, Bill Gates' generosity. God's generosity is directed towards his enemies. Now, here's the thing. Do you know who Bill Gates has never, ever given any money to? Apple. Never given any money to Apple. In fact, if you're a businessman and you want to study ruthlessness, you study Bill Gates. He's unsurpassed at acquiring and then dismantling and utterly destroying other tech companies. What God does, what makes him so different in his generosity, is his generosity is directed at his enemies. Think about it. Our default position from birth is to be in glad and happy rebellion against our Creator. We're all firm believers that we can be our own God, our own authority, that we know what's best in our life. It's the default position of the human heart, wicked rebellion against our Creator. Even now, we can all think of things that we have done in our past, things we've thought things we're ashamed of, things we're embarrassed about, things we wouldn't want anyone else finding out about, things that perhaps we think even now cause a distance between us and God. Now just let it sink in. The response of God to all of this mess in our lives isn't to destroy us but rather it's to send the Son. For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son. Not to condemn, not to show up with this lengthy list of all of our failings and all the things we'll never be able to do, rather to show us a way out of condemnation to create a way out from under our failings, our shortcomings, and our rebellion, to eradicate once and for all past sins, present struggles, future failures. This is the generosity of God. He sends the Son. Now what you have here is the love of God taking the initiative in moving towards us. Now again, this whole thing is utterly spectacular. For God 
so loved the world that he moved intentionally closer towards those on earth. He moves closer towards his enemies. He moves towards us. Let's be honest. All of us are struggling in one area of life or another. I'm guessing there are addictions. There are fears. There are people perhaps struggling with depression. People in the room who... who secretly feel unlovable, who don't like the way they look, they don't like themselves. There are people here who struggle in regard to sexual purity, to lust, to anger. There are those who kind of on and on and on and on I could go here. What I just saw is that God, in his initiating love, leaned towards us, not away from us. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son. I think it's important just to flag up a couple of other things very quickly here. First of all, in calling Jesus the Son of God, doesn't mean he was born from some goddess up there, and God sent down one of the best of his kids to come and rescue us. That's not what happened. Jesus is begotten of. He is from the same substance as. He is God in the flesh. And so God himself, in his leaning in, in his meeting us where we are, right in the middle of our mess and our shame, sends Christ to be the righteousness that we desperately need. Listen, your righteousness, you at your very best, you at your proudest moment, you at the pinnacle of all of your achievements in your lifetime is never going to be adequate to cancel the record of debt that you have towards God. You're never ever going to be good enough to save yourself, which is why God, in his great love, leaned in. As verse 17, here in John 3, goes on to say, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It's absolutely amazing. Christ hasn't come to condemn, but rather to remove that condemnation from us, to lift it right off us. He wasn't repulsed by us, but rather came to rescue us. You know, This series, looking at the big story of the Bible, has taught us anything. Surely it's taught us that humanity needs rescuing. From the very beginning, God's people have never been able to keep all the rules. There are are occasional bright spots, but they are very, very occasional. Ultimately, it's a story of disastrous failure. And so God would have been fully within his rights to send his son into the world to condemn the world to obliterate the world, to destroy the world. But instead, he sent him to save us. It's how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 8, verse 3. He says, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Two things here. 
I think are extremely important for you to get and understand. Number one is that however hard you try, you'll never ever be able to fully obey God's law. It says what the law was powerless to do because it is weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own son. You and I are never going to be able to be good enough to purchase from God, to earn from God our own salvation. I don't know. Maybe you've kind of stumbled in here this morning, just exhausted at trying to obey all the rules. Absolutely at the end of yourself, trying to be good enough. Just, just wasted at trying to tick all the boxes. The Bible says you're not going to ever tick all the boxes. The commandments of God, in a very real sense, were given to show you, to highlight to you that you can't obey them. Almost every day of your life provides objective evidence that that's true. And so the first piece of what I believe is great news here is that you have this admission in the Word of God, in the Bible itself, that you and I are never going to be able to keep the law perfectly. We're just not going to be able to do it. It agrees that we're powerless. What the law was powerless to do because it is weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son. That's the second piece here. That where we are powerless, Jesus has powerfully provided all that's required when it comes to the law. He has fulfilled it. I think the reason we can hear that and not a single person is jumping out of their seats, fist-pumping, shouting at the top of their voices, celebrating like crazy, is either I'm doing a rubbish job explaining it, or, or maybe you are fast asleep, or there's something in us that's going, fulfilled it all? That, that can't be right. I mean, surely I need to do something. Look at me. When it comes to your salvation, when it comes to God forgiving you, when it comes to God delighting in you, when it comes to God choosing you, accepting you, calling you his own, you can do absolutely nothing to help him with that. Salvation belongs to God and God alone and it is Christ alone who justifies by grace through faith, and even that faith is a gift from God to you. Maybe this will help you. If you have children, certainly it will. There are things I want my kids to help me with, and there are certain things that they simply cannot help me with. Like, there's a time for them to be in the kitchen, and there's a time for them to not be in the kitchen. For example, washing up, I'm happy for them to be in the kitchen helping out at that point. If I'm trying to prepare a, a gourmet meal for all of my work colleagues, that's the time for them to be out of the kitchen. What many of us want to do is help God with our salvation. Just get out of the kitchen. You're of no help at all. Listen, in desperately trying to earn your salvation, you're not stopping God from saving you. You are stopping yourself from enjoying what He has already done for you. 
You, you don't thwart the purposes of God. You thwart, you undermine your own joy that's already been purchased and given to you by the Son. Let it sink in. Your salvation, your joy, your acceptance, your security, your hope isn't rooted in your own works, isn't rooted in your own performance, is rooted in what Christ has done for you. It's no mistake, when he died on the cross, his last words that he uttered were, it is finished. It's done. It's completed. Nothing more that you need to contribute. Now, all that being said, not everyone is going to benefit from God's initiating in his love towards us. It says, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I think we need to do a little bit of work around this word belief. It's not just kind of assenting to something in your mind, agreeing with something intellectually. It's not just, oh yeah, of course I believe in Jesus. My fear is that far too many of us believe in Jesus like we believe in someone like Martin Luther King or John Lennon. He's a kind of historic figure who did some cool stuff and then died an untimely death. No, no. Belief is that I believe he is who he says he is, and he did what he said he did, and as a result, my whole life is now all about him. Jesus says he's God. Not only that, he says he's the only way to God. Because when he died on the cross, all of our sin and all of our rebellion, past, present and future, was placed on Jesus. He absorbed it fully, taking on the, the, the just punishment of his Father that should have come to us. He comes, God in the flesh. He lives this perfect, spotless, pure, righteous life that you and I, by the grace of God, have now been given. It's been credited to us. So when God looks down on this room, as he looks down into your life, he sees the righteous acts of Christ. He sees those who are his children, dearly loved, because we're in Christ. Earlier on in this chapter, in verse 3, Jesus describes this in terms of being born again. This isn't a casual, take it or leave it kind of deal. It's actually the most radical change of life you can possibly imagine. You know, I always found it slightly strange when people ask if I'm one of those born-again Christians. It's like asking somebody if they're a medicine-dispensing pharmacist or a music-making guitarist. If you don't dispense medicine, you're not a pharmacist. If you don't make music, you're not a guitarist. You might think you are or claim you are, but really you're not. And if you're not born again, then you're not a genuine believer in Jesus. Jesus says earlier on in John 3, if you're not born again, you, you can't see the kingdom at all. It's an extraordinary statement. You kind of understand why in conversation with Nicodemus, earlier on in John 3, and Nicodemus hears this, he, he's pretty bemused. He, he doesn't quite get what Jesus is going on about. I mean, think about it. Practically, you can't go back inside your mother and go through the whole birthing thing all over again. I mean, it, it's a ludicrous idea. 
Yeah, that's the kind of radical life change that Jesus is demanding here. I think the reason why Jesus says such a surprising thing is because he has a true understanding of both human sinfulness and the magnitude, the scale of the problem it presents. To many Jews in his day, the answer to the problem of human sin was just trying to obey more and more God's law. To the Gentiles, those who weren't Jews, everyone else on planet earth, human sin wasn't really that much of a problem because their gods didn't require holiness from people. You could pretty much live as you wanted to live. Funny enough, both views are still around today, perhaps even in this very room. There'll be some here who are still trying to earn their way to God through their performance, through their good works. Others assume that because God loves them, he doesn't really mind how we live. As long as we're happy, then everyone's fine. I'm saying that we must be born again. Jesus is making it crystal clear. Both views have got it completely wrong. The Gentiles had misunderstood God. The Jews had misunderstood people. Jesus knew this was a massive problem. The bottom line is God is holy and we're not. And no amount of effort and hard work on our part would ever make up that difference. And so the solution wasn't to try again or even to start again but to be born again. And that's the sort of radical remaking of people that God generously offers in the gospel. I think about it. If sin was ultimately a problem with our thinking, we could just solve it with new thinking, new thoughts. If it was ultimately a problem with our feelings, we could try and experience new emotions if it's ultimately a problem with our actions, we, we could desperately try to do new things. I think all other world religions, all other secular worldviews that I'm aware of, believe that one of those three things is the answer to humanity's problems, whether it's atheism, Islam, or Zen Buddhism. It's either down to thinking, feelings, or actions. And all the time they've got it wrong. Jesus is telling us here that sin is ultimately a problem with our being, with our very nature. So it can only be solved by becoming a new creature, a totally new being. Now listen, I know I might have lost some of you in the process of all of this, but if you don't get it, you'll never grasp the sheer generosity of God in the gospel. The foundation stone of the good news of the gospel is that we were powerless to save ourselves, but God took the initiative in giving us a completely new nature. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, you're part of his completely new creation. You're not simply the old you who's learnt to think or feel or behave differently. You're a new creature and you think and you feel and you act differently because of who you are. You've been born again. You've been made new. You've been, to use kind of spiritual jargon, regenerated by the Spirit 
of God. As we draw to a close, can we very quickly try and translate what it means to believe this in a way that makes it real? Very practically, believing in Jesus and being born again means that you have declared war on the sin in your life and that you are serious about growing in your relationship with God. Not to earn salvation, but because you've been born again. It's an outworking of who you are in Christ. It it springs from your new nature. If those things aren't true about you, I suggest maybe you don't truly believe in Jesus. Do you hear me? If there's no seriousness about sin in your life, if there's no desire for you to grow in an understanding of who Jesus is, you perhaps don't truly believe in him. You simply believe in Jesus like you believe in some sort of historic figure, but you don't believe in him in a way that leads to eternal life. Let's not rush over this phrase, eternal life. There is on offer life in the future and for eternity, hence the phrase eternal life. But we learn later on in John, in John chapter 10, verse 10, that Jesus is also talking about us experiencing fullness of life right here, right now. It's not just someday when we get to heaven, but that even now we get to experience the very life of Christ. In a very real sense, if we genuinely believe in Jesus, he grants us fullness of life now. At the start of a brand new year, I want to appeal to you to fully take hold of this gift. Eternal life starts now. There is so much more of the life of Christ for you to experience and enjoy today. For God so loved the world. He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Just to say, in the same way as eternal life doesn't just refer to the future, this word perishing doesn't just refer to eternal perishing, but actual perishing even in the here and now. I mean, all around us are people who are not only destined to perish forever, but are actually perishing today. Romans 1 verse 24 describes how God gives people over to their sinful practices. It's like the very things that people are pursuing for pleasure are actually eating away at them and destroying them. I just take a walk around this city. Look at the fear, look at the pain, look at the hurt, look at the insecurity, look at the brokenness, look at the mess in people's lives that comes from pursuing stuff that can't ultimately deliver and all the time we're sitting here in this room armed with the knowledge that the only solution the only way to freedom the only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ 
I want to end with this. As I said at the beginning, really more than anything else, I want to fuel not just your knowledge and understanding of God's generosity. I want to plead with you to actually live in the good of his generosity more and more and more and more. So that when you hear these words that people all around you are perishing, you would be motivated, you would be compelled, not by guilt, not by a sense of duty, but out of experience for yourself of the sheer, utter, magnificent goodness of God to reach out to them with the offer of life. Returning to the example of Bill Gates, if you possessed all of his wealth, I'm reckoning probably, sooner or later, maybe later for some of you, judging by your response earlier, but sooner or later you would start sharing it with others. I mean, it would be immoral not to. My argument is that you've actually been blessed with something of far, far, far greater worth. And if you genuinely believe that, and if you're actually living in the good of it, you won't need me to appeal to you to share it with the people around you. So I want to give you just a few moments by yourself to consider God's goodness towards you. Whatever posture you need to get into, if you need to stand up, stretch your legs, go and sit somewhere else in the room, lie down, or just stay where you are, that's fine. If you want to get your phone out and not do something else, but take notes on it, or maybe you're old school and you've still got kind of paper and pen, that's fine. But you you just get some space and, and use whatever you can to write down, to record, to think on, to reflect on God's generosity towards you. How has he blessed you? How has he been generous with you? It's going to give you a few moments. Think as specifically as you can, not just some kind of blanket, well, he's generous, but specifically, how has he dealt generously with you? What, if anything, are you thankful for? What are some of the best things about knowing him? What difference, if any, has he made and is he making in your life? Give you a few moments just to think about that by yourself.